This podcast covers a murder that occurred in 1983. It is a true story, and while I have relied heavily on police reports and public documents, the opinions of the host and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. The credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. January 19th, 1983. Jeanette would have shown up just like the rest of the employees bright and early when the store opened that day. It was a Wednesday and a bit warmer than usual for that time of year in Michigan. It was a delivery day, so employees would spend the day unloading the truck and then emptying the totes of product onto the shelves. Carl Johnson came up to Gamble's between 10 and 11 to drop off some baby gerbils he was selling to Jeanette. The muffler on his car was broken, so a friend, Tom Hawkins, drove him up there. Carl said he waited about 15 minutes in the basement, and when Jeanette didn't show up, he went upstairs and asked the manager when she would be back. The manager informed him that her husband, Alvin, had already been to the store a couple times that day, and that she might have gone home with him for lunch. Carl then left, and later that day his wife would return with the gerbils. Next was Gene Johnson, who says he was in around 11.30. He ran into Jeanette around the center of the store, where she had been walking from the back up toward him. Can I help you? she asked. Gene had never met her, and he was a regular, so he figured she was the new clerk for the pet department. He hadn't been down there since Dave Ingalls, the store owner, was putting it together. I know this store better than you, he teased, and then asked, where is everyone? Unloading the truck, she told him. Jean was the director of maintenance at the hospital in Reed City at the time of the murder. He frequented the store to get supplies. They would write out a receipt and he would stick it on the spike for hospital billing. He knew his way around the store. Jean told her that he could find what he needed, and he said Jeanette told him she had something to take care of downstairs, and she proceeded down to the pet department. Jean says he remembered seeing employees unloading the truck into both back doors, the gamble side and the expanded into men's door side. He said he wasn't in the store long, maybe 10 minutes. Next were a couple of young teens who felt they'd been in the store in the early afternoon, though they couldn't pinpoint the exact time all these years later. They were the only other customers that I communicated with who had seen Jeanette that day, and it sounds as though they may have been the last ones to see her. They said they walked down into the basement, and it was quiet. Nobody else was there. They didn't hear anyone else in the back room. No sound except the humming of the tanks and the bubble machines. Jeanette walked through the doorway into the display room and left the door to the back room open behind her. Neither teen recalls hearing or seeing anyone else back there with her or in the adjoining basement through the rough cut hole in the old men's store side. Jeanette asked them if they needed any help and they replied that they were just looking. Later, during their interview, 
the police would be most interested in what they remembered about the layout of the basement, even having them sketch out the positions of things, particularly the locations of the doors. One teen remembered the light on in the adjoining room and the tarp hanging over the hole and thinking that the owners were working on that room. The other one thought he may have seen a table saw on that side. They were only there about five or ten minutes, and one of the teens told me that he was particularly struck by how Jeanette treated them like adults, rather than following them around the store like many of the other clerks in the local businesses did. Blanche says she came in around one o'clock and went downstairs looking for a product called Ick. Something to keep her fish tank from getting yucky is how she described it. She went down into the pet department, but found nobody there. She says she looked around for a bit, she thinks maybe five or ten minutes, and there were no other customers down there when she went down, but she did recall seeing a blue tarp hanging in that doorway-sized area between the two basements. Finally, she went upstairs and said to one of the clerks, you know, it'd be nice if there was someone downstairs to ring people up. The associate she spoke to said, maybe she's still at lunch. She said that she may have left the store and shopped elsewhere on Upton Street that day because she ran into her boss at some point across the street near the bakery, and he asked her what was going on over at Gamble's. Apparently, some commotion caught his eye, and she thought it could have been an ambulance. If that were the case, she would have had to have come in later than the next two women because the ambulance didn't show up till around four. Whichever the case, Blanche never got her ick. Venus and Jan were sisters-in-law who were shopping for items for a new 50-gallon tank. Their recollection is of arriving at Gamble's between 2 and 3 o'clock and being there for quite some time, maybe as long as an hour. They had two little boys with them, ages 2 and 3 at the time, and they browsed around looking at all the fish and supplies. Jan had even peeked into the back room where Jeanette was killed, but hadn't seen anything. Later, when they were interviewed by police, they were told that it was a good thing she didn't go back there. They believed that there was a possibility the killer could have either been back there at the time or had already gone and left the battered and bloody Jeanette just inside. At some point, the woman realized that nobody had come down to help them. Jan said that she had a vague recollection of a male customer coming down at some point, looking for the cashier and saying, there's nobody down here? Jan told him no, and he went back upstairs. After having picked out all the items they wanted, with no one there to ring them up, Jan went upstairs to look for a clerk. The little boys followed her up the stairs, leaving Venus down there alone. She thinks she was down there for about ten minutes by herself, because Jan had taken the boys to the bathroom while she was up there. When Jan came back downstairs, a clerk came with her, and it was likely Angie based on the description. She rang up their items. Jan doesn't recall her calling out for Jeanette at all or looking for her. Based on the news excerpt from right after the murder, police theorized that Venus and Jan had been there at a critical point in the timeline. From the Pioneer newspaper. Police are looking for two women who purchased fish equipment and may have witnessed the crime. The paper went on to add, the women were not suspects, but police feel they may have important information concerning the bizarre death. 
Jan told me that when the woman came back downstairs to ring up her items, suddenly there were a bunch of customers down there, and they were all together. She said that she remembered thinking, wow, nobody down here this whole time, and suddenly there's a whole bunch of customers. I asked her if they could have been employees, and she said no. I just figured maybe work had just let out, and everybody was coming in, and it was just a busy time at the store. This makes sense, because the next group of people to come in the store were all there when Jeanette was found. Elkie was the wife of Carl, who had been in earlier with the gerbils, and she came back with them. Mark Truman came in with his mother after school to get a battery for his car. The Cookers were both teachers who'd just gotten off work and stopped in before going home. And the Thorpes were a couple with their kids who came in with a friend. According to Elkie, she was in the store a long time that day, too. She went up and down the stairs, waiting a long time without seeing Jeanette, but she went upstairs and found the first employee she saw and asked where Jeanette was. She was told that maybe Jeanette was still at lunch. Elkie went back downstairs, thinking, this is a really long lunch. She doesn't recall ever seeing any other customers in the pet department while she was down there. Mark Truman and his mother ended up at the register at some point, and he vividly remembers the day because he had been unable to drive to school due to the car battery not working, and he was eager to replace it. While they had shopped, his mom had picked out some Job plant spikes. Mark recalls that Angie was looking up the battery type for his car in a book when a male employee, who he thought was the owner, came up to Angie and told her to go downstairs and look for Jeanette. Also standing near the register area at this time were the Cookers. They recall hearing someone say, well, her coat is here. So now everyone's wondering where Jeanette is, customers and employees, and a male employee has just sent Angie back downstairs to look for her. Interestingly, Mark remembers that nobody ever finished looking up the battery. He thinks the male employee went back upstairs after sending Angie to find Jeanette. Maybe she didn't hear you, Elkie recalled Angie saying as they both walked toward the back room door. She should have been back. Elkie was just behind Angie when the door opened and she said she didn't even have to go all the way in. All I could see was her red hair. It was red, I mean, bloody. And her hair used to be so beautiful, almost white. Mark remembers Angie coming back up the stairs looking white as a ghost and saying, she's downstairs. Glossy remembered her bent over at the waist, unable to speak, just pointing at the stairs. John, Angie's having a heart attack, Glossy screamed. She said John came running down the stairs from the office, taking them two at a time. She said he went downstairs and quickly came back up and said, lock all the doors. Mrs. Kulker described Angie as distraught. She also said that it only occurred to her later that evening, once they got home, that she didn't remember anyone checking the store to see if the killer was inside with them before they locked the doors. Mark remembered a man going downstairs and coming back up pretty quickly and saying, there's nothing we can do for her now. He said that man then called police. It isn't clear if Mark saw John, the manager, or Dave, the store owner. But he said the man that went downstairs was the same man that told Angie to go down and look for Jeanette. 
But time becomes compressed in situations like this, and scenarios overlap when there's confusion. Add three decades to these memories, and it's fair to say some of the recollections are likely a bit off. Mrs. Thorpe recalls being downstairs somewhere during this time, seeing the door to the back room ajar, and being told everyone needed to leave the pet department. If that's the case, Jeanette had already been found. Thomas Hawkins, who Elkie's husband thinks was there because he drove her back that day with the gerbils, was one of the people listed in the police report as having been in the back room near the body. So he was milling around down in the pet department after she was discovered too. Mark and his mom left before police even arrived. He said the manager was telling people to leave and that it happened so fast, some of the customers filtered over next door to the Ben Franklin. In all the commotion, his mother left the gamble store still clutching the Joe plant spikes and had to go back another day to pay for them. Police report says Jeanette was found at 3.50. I know that there were more customers in the store that day, that I never got to ask about it. I've heard of multiple other people who had stopped in sometime or another that day, but I was either unable to talk to them, or they couldn't remember the time, or anything of import. There was a nurse that wandered in sometime around when Jeanette was discovered, because she was passing by and thought she could provide assistance. She is listed in the Michigan State Police Report, along with Thomas Hawkins, as having been one of the persons who entered the immediate area where the body was found. There was also a city police officer who had visited as a store patron twice that day, according to Detective Pratt. This is the same officer who ended up back at the scene later, despite having been suspended at the time and would later meet the evidence technician at the door and be the one to show him down to the scene. I was only able to recreate the timeline based on people who could remember when they were there and were willing to share that information with me. It was 1600 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon is when I took over the chair as far as dispatch goes. We're always 15 minutes early so that everything can be explained to us, what's going on to get caught up before you know, your actual shift starts. I took over the chair, sat down behind the, behind the radios. I also had to do dispatching. So back then it was a dispatch and a correctional officer type situation. So, but I sat down behind the chair and the minute my tail end hit that chair, the phone rang. At that point in time, the person on the other end says, I think there's been a murder in the in the basement of Gambles in the pet store. I said, they're going, what? And they repeated it. At that point in time, I looked at the two officers that were there with me, and I don't remember, I'm pretty sure it was Davis and Wister, but I'm not totally positive. And I looked at those two officers, and I told them what was going on. They ran out the door and took off toward Gambles. At that point in time, I contacted the sheriff, which he lived in the um, sheriff's department in apartments in the back. 
I contacted him. He came up and told me to dispatch it as a heart attack. That's one thing I do remember now. So I dispatched EMS out as a possible heart attack at Gamble store. Then as everything was progressing, I got a hold of state, let them know what was going on. They contacted the city. The city was on their way down there. So we had county, city, and state. And then eventually the detectives came down, and the sheriff then took off, and he went on down there. And then I just typed in everything and monitored everything that was going on over the radios from that point. Okay. Now, the uh, question I have about state, or the contact through state, in the reports, once I've gone through them, I have found that Detective Pratt, nobody from state actually showed up at that scene until about 4.30. Detective Pratt didn't come until Jim Tulaski, the prosecutor, called him. So I guess I'm wondering if when you called state, they, they defer to county until they're called again to come to the scene, or how that works? My guess is when I called state, I, I naturally assumed the state was on scene because I had called them. But state also dispatches cities. So maybe, maybe what happened here was is that state dispatched cities. City went down there. State held back and waited for confirmation from city. City then confirmed it, which got a hold of um, George Pratt and probably um, our detective, which he was on the way. Right. Probably at that time, contacted Platts. Okay. All right. So that would be, that kind of makes sense because if they dispatch City and they send them down there, I guess they need to wait to find out what they have. Do you, maybe right. Is it a possibility that when you called State, it was dispatched as a heart attack or you wouldn't do that to other law enforcement? You would only have done no. that with EMS? No, the other, the other law enforcement, I told them exactly what we had. Okay. All and right. I think at that point in time, State always has cars out but the trouble is with the state cars they're usually quite a ways away so before they start you know even if they had dispatched a, a state car to be on the scene that state car may have been that could have been a big rapids or it could have been you know just about anywhere in this general area because they handled Macasa county and osceola county so that half an hour could be just because they were responding from a half an hour out well, that makes sense. And I don't have any any um, notation of a single state person coming to the scene except Detective Pratt. And that was after Tulaski showed up and when he was called, and then he called Pratt. So it may have been that the troopers that, that, were, that um, got the dispatch were in other cars elsewhere, and then the first person that arrived in town that was able to get down there was Detective Pratt. Right, because usually Detective Pratt usually stay right at the state police post. He was very seldom out and about. Okay. But he and wouldn't have been the one to get the first dispatch, right? Because he's a detective versus one of the troopers. Correct. Okay, so that makes sense. I think it's much more clear in my head now. And then, of course, Southworth, he was leaving at that time. He was in his car when he saw EMS, when he drove by and saw EMS, and that, that's the reason why he jumped out. He parked and wanted to know what was going on and got out and went over there is what his report says. Right. Okay. Do you know... Um, who it was that called you from Gambles? You know, I to this day don't really remember. Other than it was, I don't know if I don't know if it was. 
I'm pretty sure it wasn't Flossie. You don't know if it was a male or female? Yeah, you know, I don't remember, Jenny. I'm sorry. No, that's all right. I'd rather you say you don't remember if you don't, because I, 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 that's, you know, we don't want to guess. It's better we don't know, right. you know. All right, all right, so all we know is that a call came in, and someone, and remember, I remember um, that Flossie was telling me that Angie was so, she actually did think Angie was having a heart attack, just the way she looked when she came from upstairs. So initially I thought, well, maybe that's how a heart attack call came because maybe someone thought she was having a heart attack and called, you know. That's what the confusion was for me until I spoke to you about it. So basically all we know is that someone made the call from there. We're not sure who it was. And then after that, were there any other calls associated with that scene that came in that day? No. Nothing else. Um, no. What, what, um, oh, wait a minute. Yeah, and seen a guy run out of the store with an army jacket and was heading toward the bus depot. Okay, and who was it that saw that? Do you know? I don't know. So That was brought, that was brought up to the officers down there. The only thing that came back to me was that uh, they're en route to stop the bus. Okay, so someone must have seen or thought that the person that exited that store... Um, was suspicious enough that they chased him down and got him off the bus. And it, am I right in assuming this was someone? Once they talked to them, it was it, it it they were ruled out. Yeah. Okay. So tell me what not what independent knowledge do you have of above the men's store side? Um, I believe you had told me there were apartments back then. Is that correct? Correct. There's an apartment right straight above the Gamble store. It's the whole top floor of the Gamble store is the actual apartment. Is it only one apartment or multiple apartments? It's only one apartment up there. And it's right up there by the furniture. You go through the furniture and there's the apartment. Okay. The furniture's only the front. I then, see. Then toward the back, it's divided. It's like it's divided in half on the store of lower and upper. And then that upper half is divided in half again. So that the front part of it was furniture, and when you went into the apartments, because I've been up there a couple of times, when you go through to the apartment, you had to weed your way down through a, like a little maze to get through the furniture to get back to the apartment. All right, and how, so it wasn't that big of an apartment then? No, it was big enough. It had a, it had a kitchenette, a living room, and I think it was two bedrooms. They're small, yeah. but there's like two bedrooms, a kitchenette, and a living room. And did anyone live up there at the time? Do you know? I can't. You know, I can't really. It's. I'm thinking Dave's brother lived up there, but I'm not positive. But you do know there was an apartment up there at the time. It existed up there. Yeah, and it still exists to this day. All right, so then you're saying that the apartment that existed on the Gamble side was back behind the furniture section that you'd walk through the furniture section to get to that. Correct. Okay. Do you remember if the incoming calls were recorded or logged back then when you worked in the dispatch for Osceola County Sheriff's Department? They were all recorded. So audio recorded, they would have audio recordings of them. Correct. Now, they did they do record both ends, like when the person called in and then when you gave your instructions out, did that record also? Yeah, everything was recorded completely through the phone lines. Okay, that's good. I'm going to try to see if I can get that recording, just because, remember, we had that question about the whole, um, one of the calls to the EMTs going out as um, 
as the heart attack, and I kind of wanted to make sh- to figure it out, you know, to see what that was about. Right. Um, I think that you know, after I thought about it, I think that's exactly how the sheriff told me to put it out because he didn't want anybody to know anything any different. You know, anybody who has scanners. When you made the call out, when you dispatched the call, that would have only been on a line that that the law enforcement officers would hear. No, everybody and their brother could hear it. So if it already and it went out to everybody and your brother, why would you, they need to make the second call to the EMTs uh, differently? By that time, everybody knew exactly what was going on due to all the rest of the, you know, stuff that was happening and everything. You know, all the different scanners out there and everything else, and everybody gathering around town. And you know, at that point in time, everybody knew, you know, totally different. Right. Um, let's talk about how dispatching worked back in the 1980s. So who did Osceola County dispatch for? Was it for the Reed City PD, the state police, EMTs? Who were you responsible for dispatching? The Sheriff's Department, number one, all the deputies. The fire, you know, county fire and city fire. Um, EMS, and then also, um, you know, like your weather alert, you know, your tornado sirens and stuff like that. Yeah, state police were dispatching city, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, we had a city line that we could talk to the city by, you know, through, through the radios. There's a totally different frequency. Okay. So the, the city and the state police were on the same frequency. They would talk to each other. They would do each, each other's dispatching back and forth. You know, why we handled the other aspects of the fire and all that. I see. Okay. So the state would be dispatching city on a different frequency that if, if for any reason you wanted to contact city, you would be doing that on a different frequency. Correct. Now, were there any frequencies that n- that the general public would not be able to find, but only law enforcement would be able to get? Right. There's, they called it the privacy frequency. There was two privacy frequencies. Car to car and dispatch to car. But dispatch very, very seldom used that private security security line because you would have to change over. And when you changed over, anything else that was coming in on a normal line, you couldn't hear it. Ah. So dispatch very seldom used the private line. Car to car always used it. Okay, so after the initial call comes in, just a general call. What was the role of this, the dispatcher after that? Did you have any other follow-ups that you had to do? Or once or once it was done, it was done, and you just went on to the next? Okay, once I put the call out, I would monitor, you know, basically any dispatcher, when they put a call out, let's say to, to one of their officers on a, or whatever it might be, like a domestic dispute or whatever, um... What you do is you wait five minutes. Then a second after they go, um, you know, at the scene, that's when you wait your five minutes. Excuse me, but I got a little ahead of myself. But as soon as they get at the scene or where they're going to, you wait five minutes and then you give a call back. And what it is, it's a uh, just a check to make sure that your officer is still standing and not laying somewhere in a ditch. Oh, that's that's a good idea. <laughs> Yeah, so you make that follow-up call there. Once he comes back and he says he's 10-4 or 
or you know okay or whatever the case might be then all you do at that point in time is go go over to your typewriter because back then computers were the size of of a wall (laughs) (laughs) you go over to your typewriter and you type in um you know your your call the times the the date the whole 10 yards into a uh typed in log and that log gets filed at the end of your shift so they would have a, a a typed in log plus that they would have the audio to go together Correct. Okay, that's good. And back then there was no 911, is that right, in 1983? Right, it was just uh, you dial in a sheriff's department. Um, you know, if you need an ambulance or whatever the case might be, it all came into the sheriff's department on uh, just a regular um, 832 number. Did the general public just know that number by heart? Yeah. Yeah, most of them all knew that number by heart. Almost like the 911 now, everybody knows the 911. Gotcha. Back then, anybody who lived in Osceola County that would need the sheriff's department, they'd either know it by heart or they had it written down someplace close to the phone or they had it written down in their wallet, whatever the case might be, so that it was always accessible whenever they needed this, you know, something, some type of emergency, they would have it easily accessible to them. So that was one number, but so people wouldn't be generally calling in the city police number or the state police post. They would have the county sheriff's number is what was generally called. Correct. Every once in a while they'd mess up and somebody would call in and ask him for city. And you'd say, wait, you're get, you got the county and you have to call uh, 832-2221, which would be the state police. Okay. Now, with respect to Jeanette's, do you, are you, do you believe that county you're you were the very first call that went out from gambles to anyone yeah we were the very very first ones to respond because i was sitting in a chair and two officers were already in the sheriff's department at the time so all i did was spin around and look right at them and say bingo this is what we got and away they went they dashed out the door all butt down there then at that point in time i contacted the other the other authorities that needed to go I wanted to ask you, as far as scanners, talk to me about how prevalent they were in just the general public. Did just, like, you know, your neighbors, would they have a scanner? Would a lot? Would half the, you know, how how prevalent were they at the time? Everybody had a Bearcat scanner. That was the biggest thing back then. You know, programmable Bearcat scanner. First thing that ever come out, and everybody got it. So they could program every call, everything, ambulance, fire, city, state, you name it, they could put it on there. And what was the, just as someone who has never even heard one before, what was the, uh, what was that about? Was it, was it just fun to listen to? Yeah, everybody just kind of like listen, like to listen to it. Huh. Find out who, basically what it is, it's like, you know how you get a nosy neighbor? Oh, oh boy, okay. <laughs> You know, the nosy neighbor always wants to look in your window to find out what's going on. Ah. You know, this is basically the same thing. There was nosy people. Scanners belong to nosy people. Oh. You know, they turn around and they want to know everything that's going on because they want to find out who it is that's getting called. Like, if they know the address, then they know that, oh, that's Jenny Decker's place. Right, exactly. Oh, okay, hey. That... Oh, we got something now. Jenny's got the cops coming. Let me call my buddy over here and see if he's got the same thing. Or the one that lives next door to her. You see the cops out there yet? They're coming. Just a couple notes. Ray Haight, 
says he thought the two deputies at the sheriff's department right there next to him that day, when the call came in, were deputies Davis and Oyster. I've spoken to Chuck Davis, who is now the Reed City Police Chief, and he was not on duty that day. Deputy Oyster was, as was Deputy Kingsbury, so it was most likely those two, as both are mentioned in the reports as having been at the scene, along with Sheriff Needham. Osceola County Detective James Southworth, who showed up because he was driving by and saw the ambulance and decided to go in and see what was happening. He had to have arrived before the deputies from Osceola County, though, because his report says that after going downstairs, witnessing the scene, and subsequently having it turned over to him by Officer Finkbeiner, he went outside to the patrol unit and radioed the sheriff's department to notify Sheriff Needham, Reed City Police Chief Philip Rathbun, Deputy Tom Kingsbury, Northern County Evidence Service, and Prosecutor Talaski. Southworth's report says Detective Pratt arrived a few minutes later, although Detective Pratt told me when I interviewed him that he arrived about an hour after Jeanette was found. He only came to the scene once Prosecutor Talaski arrived and called him. As you heard from Ray, the dispatcher, he was clear on his deputies running out that door as soon as the call came in from Gambles. Then he called the state police post, who would have been the ones to dispatch Reed City PD. Also, according to Gary McGee, the EMT, when they rolled up at 408, Officer Finkbeiner was standing outside the Gamble store, holding the door open and shooing customers from the store. It makes you wonder if Officer Finkbeiner thought he was responding to a heart attack as well. Because clearing a scene, if in fact you thought you were responding to a heart attack, would be a reasonable response. His report says that he responded to the Sheriff's Department radio dispatch. Finkbeiner's report says he entered the building with the EMTs, and Gary McGee did say that Finkbeiner led him down to the basement. The reason why that timeline concerns me is because of something else that's in the report later. In 1985, Two years after the murder, when two different detectives, Albright and Vincent, are assigned to the case to go back over it with a couple sets of fresh eyes, they contacted Jeanette's mother, Marion Fisher, and she was re-interviewed, quote, in reference to how she was advised of the death of her daughter. She said that she was working at the city building on the day of the murder, and at approximately 3.45 to 4 o'clock, Officer Larry Finkbeiner of the Reed City Police Department came to the city building and told her that Jeanette was dead, that an incident happened at the Gamble store. Someone's timing is a bit off because Jeanette wasn't even found until 3.50, and according to Finkbeiner's own report, he was busy at that time leading EMTs into the store. They didn't even arrive until 4.08. He awaited their assessment then turn the scene over to Detective Southworth, and it would have had to have been subsequent to that that he went down the street to the city building. The city building was just down Upton Street a few blocks, but he would have had to have gotten there quite a bit later than Marianne's account, or else the timing on his report is off. It is of note that his report says nothing about leaving the scene and going down to the city building to notify Marianne Fisher. It's possible that that is part of the redacted sections of the report. But if that's the case, I would find that concerning, given that the basis upon which I got those reports released 
was that the public had a right to know the comings and goings of law enforcement officers on the day in question. If that information is in the report, and it was redacted, I would like to know why. One of the problems with this case that I, I, I feel like I've realized now that I've, I'm this far in is that a lot of people in town have a very specific idea of what they think happened. And they're not really have any, they don't have any more room in their head for other possibilities. And if all of those are conspiracy theories or if they're just not the right suspect or if they think the person has died because a lot of people that are in and around law enforcement, specifically associated with Osceola County, have told me, oh, I was told that the person's dead already. And I said, well, I don't think they'd be sending in evidence to be retested if they believe the perpetrator was dead. We don't have those kind of resources out here to be doing more DNA right. testing and stuff. So that's kind of the problem and why I wanted to keep this going with the podcast because there's so many misconceptions out there. And if people are thinking one thing and they don't realize, no, that's not a possibility. Direct your attention this way. Pay attention to what was going on that day, who you might have seen, what they might have done, anyone that was suspicious. That's what I want people to focus on. Not focusing on the rich guy that owned some big business in town that only knew her because he worked. He owned a business that she worked for for a couple months. Or, no, it's not this person or it's not the husband. He's been ruled out. So don't look at those things. Let's look at the actual things, you know. Right. Look at all the facts. Put the facts together and see what you can come up with. Exactly. And so that's what we're doing. I'm kind of hoping they are because if they're not, we're basically beating a dead horse. You know what I'm saying? That's exactly right. And that's the problem. We're also, there's a clock ticking. Uh, witnesses are dying and uh, the perpetrator is still out there and, and is getting probably old enough at this point where it's not going to be, you know, there's not much longer before that person will be dead too. And then justice will never have been served, ever. Who knows, by now, the actual, you know, perp that ended up doing all this, he could have died from a heart attack by now. <laughs> you figure, what, it's over 30 years. Well, that's true, but like I said, they'd only recently sent stuff in for testing within the last year or so. So, we at least to that point, he would have been alive. But the thing is, usually, like the the, the case that I covered on my first season, um, the Norma Waldron case out of Nuevo County, that perpetrator died. And at that point, they can't, they have no basis upon which to hold back all that information. So they then have to release all those witness statements. So at the point that I, that I think the person maybe if I, that, let's say I, I have a person in my head, at the point that that person dies, I'm going to FOIA all, the, all those reports again. Because if she does not ever get justice in the, in our, the way our process works, I'm going to make damn sure that the community knows what really happened. And if that's just getting the witness statements out there, then that's just getting the witness statements out there because there's a reason why they've held those back. And that's because probably there's some mention of people going in and out and some of those people are suspects. Yeah. So. Well, you're doing a good job, kiddo. Well, thank you. I appreciate you always saying yes and always being there to answer my questions. Stay tuned.